The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. Mary Kay Woodworth talks about how to hire your next professional for your garden or landscape project. In this episode, she reveals some of the best questions to ask when qualifying your potential garden or landscape professional. Mary Kay serves as the Executive Director of the Georgia Urban Ag Council. The UAC organization is composed of landscape, garden, and turf professionals that advocate, educate, and promote the green industry in the state of Georgia. UAC represents one of the largest and most successful industries in Georgia, with more than $9 billion in sales, 8,000 companies, and more than 100,000 employees. She is almost a native Georgian, living here since she was eight years old. An avid gardener, she has Georgia's soil, temperature, and plant varieties mostly figured out, but learning to landscape and garden with her husband, Mark, at their second home in New Hampshire, Zone 4B, is a new challenge. This is episode 22, hiring a professional for your next garden project on the Garden Question podcast. Our conversation with Mary Kay Woodworth right after this. TheGardenQuestion.com is an awesome website because we expand each podcast episode with accurate resources and links for gardeners. You can also listen to every single episode again as many times as you like. Think of it as an extension of the podcast at TheGardenQuestion.com. Mary Kay, how do you go about hiring a professional to help you with your garden or landscape project? First of all, I think you have somewhat of an idea of what you want in your landscape, in your garden, on your property. You can't just go in falling blindly at company and just say, you know, please come out here and look at my landscape and tell me what I need. On the front end, you have to do a little bit of homework of your own. So a landscape contractor can just offer you a variety of services. Design, installation, maintenance is really based on what you need. Have an idea of what you'd like. I think it's an excellent idea to talk to friends and neighbors who have hired landscape professionals to see if you like what they've done in their yards. It's really important, I think, that you vet the company. There's some just some very, very basic things you need to know. Ask how long a company's been in business. So I did. I contact firms that are well-established and well-known in the community. Make sure that a landscape company is licensed and insured. That's a huge, huge factor. You may find a company that is cheap. They're not going to charge you a lot, but you definitely get what you pay for. Decide what you're looking for in a design. Do you want an area for entertaining? Do you want a low-maintenance landscape? Are you looking for some specific high-end hardscape, pools, water features, things like that? When you're considering all these things, you must determine what your budget is. I can talk to landscaper after landscaper who's gone out to give an estimate or to quote a job. And the homeowner, when asked what their budget is, says, you know, I really don't know. 
know. I don't know how a landscaper could start there. You've probably encountered the same thing. Yes. The, the common thing is I don't know how much things cost. And that's what people will say is, uh, I don't know what my budget is. Try to explain to them. It's like if you were going to buy a car, you kind of know what you want to spend for a car when you go and what do you want to invest in that car. So it's pretty much the same thing on a landscape, especially a project major changing in the landscape. You're going to need to know what you're willing to invest in your property. What I think surprises so many people is when they get back an estimate, there are so many items that they don't consider, such as drainage, mm-hmm. you know, grading, having a number in mind. Let's say it's 5000 Honestly, for $5,000, you're not going to get a lot. Would, would you agree with that? Yeah, especially if you're going with hardscapes, because hardscapes, there's a lot involved in it. There's a lot of material, a lot of labor. They're all going up. Being able to define, and, and a lot of time I find out that that's the, the challenge with, with folks, too, is they don't really know where they want to go. They know they want to go somewhere, but I would suggest starting with function. How do you want to use this space that you've got here, and do you want it for a play area? Do you want it for sitting and relaxing? Do you want it for a combination of things? And, and once you determine the function, then you can wrap the beauty around that. 5000 may get you what you want, but a lot of it is just deciding what you want to do. But it's not unusual for projects to be on up in the four and five figures. Certainly. You can also, working with a, a landscape professional, talk about doing things in phases. Start with your $5,000 you know, initial part of your project, the things that might be the most important to right away. And then a few years down the road or five years, 10 years, down the road, you could have another change to it. I think about my home in Atlanta, when we bought it in 2007, it had your typical you know, builder's landscape, turf thrown down there, a couple little islands for drubs, not much to it, and done uh, on the cheap. I hate saying that. The builders don't think about that when they put the landscape Typically, in. the last thing involved in the construction process, and it's right before closing, so let's get it in, get it closed, get our money, and move on. Exactly. So what we did, just using us as an example, the front, we wanted it to look nice from the street, just change a little bit of the layout where the shrubs move some things, and then had a, a nice perennial bed and pergola built so to be able to enter the backyard. That was our first phase. For me, I'm a big gardener. I do so much by myself. We had a pretty wild backyard, live on a little lake, heavily wooded with a lot of pine trees and not great trees. You know, we wanted to be able to use the area down by the lake. We we had a pretty natural landscape created, took out some pine tree, took out some other smaller hardwoods that were diseased or just didn't fit, had some mulch paths put in, and then a small hardscape patio by the lake. Then over the years, we've added nice trees, a fountain, things like that. 13 years, phased in a beautiful landscape. <laughs> now it's time to start over in some of the areas. Yeah, too. it's a wise investment to start off with designs time and money becomes available, then you can phase it in. Budget doesn't necessarily mean immediate budget. It can be over whatever time period that you want. Advantage to having a design when you start is that it's all cohesive and comprehensive mm-hmm. when you get to the finish point, if there's a such thing as finished in a landscape or garden, especially hardscapes. Professional landscape company, they understand that. They know that they that's what they do. I think that most everyone that, that I've ever come across is, is very willing to work with their customers or, or potential customers in doing that. Going back to the Urban Ag Council, professional landscape companies who are members of our association, the reason that they joined is just like in many other professions. If you're a, a lawyer, doctor, or a home builder, they all have different professional associations. It indicates that your company is interested in excellence and 
and considered a credible company. We have a couple landscape associations in Georgia. We hope that all landscape companies will consider joining one of them because it just offers a level of excellence. The consumer also has somewhat of an outlet to go to if there's a problem with the company. It's not legally binding. You know, we're not the landscape police. Over the years, I've had patients where a, a homeowner or a commercial property owner would contact us having an issue with a landscape company that's one of our members. So it gives you some level of accountability. Let me ask you this. What is urban agriculture? Would you define that? I will. And it's funny because it has different definitions depending on who you're talking to. We consider urban agriculture everything that's non-traditional agriculture. Farming is traditional agriculture. Food gardening, things like that is basically traditional agriculture. We came up with the name Georgia Urban Ag Council because in the mid-2000s, there were several landscape and landscape-related associations that were sort of banding together to work on some public policy issues. Since there were so many different sectors, we really couldn't call it, you know, the Landscape Nursery Tree Care Irrigation Council. That would be a little bit long. We took the term Urban Ag Council because it's all these urban areas, cities and counties, municipalities that these companies were operating in. Additionally, we have been very, very closely aligned with the University of Georgia Griffin Campus, which is called the Center for Urban Ag. They have a very, very well-known and well-thought of turf grass and horticulture department. It would all fit well together to, to share that. The name. landscape how valuable is it to look at their certifications or their educational background? I think it's very important. And that's one reason why a big portion of our association's role is to educate. As a matter of fact, our tagline, our logo basically is it's advocate, educate, and promote the industry. In Georgia, unlike many other states, there are no requirements to become a landscape professional. Those certifications are required. Many, many of the landscape professionals here do go further than perhaps a degree in horticulture or turf grass, agronomy, things like that, to get certification either from the University of Georgia's, it's called the GCLIP program, Georgia Certified Landscape Professional, which I know you are. Yes. Or there's a national association, the National Association of Landscape Professionals, which also offers a certification program. When you find a landscaper that goes that extra mile to continue to be educated, to keep up with what's going on in the industry, to become proficient at landscape design, landscape maintenance, spray application, irrigation, all these different components, I think that's a wise move to consider interviewing the, the different companies. Our industry is so easy to get into. Literally, all you need is a shovel. You can mm-hmm. add a lawnmower to that or whatever. If you have an interest in getting in the profession, what's a good way to get into it the right way where you're actually start developing credibility? Becoming certified. It definitely is. The Georgia Certified Landscape Professional Program is an online program. It is not very expensive. And at the end of your online classes, you so you've got to be motivated. Then there are in-person judging. You will be judged on what you know. That's one way. Another great way in Georgia and in many other areas, our technical schools have fantastic programs to become either have either an associate's degree or a diploma. I was just recently talking to John Hatfield who is head of their program at Chattahoochee Tech, talking about the majority of his students, whether they are traditional college age or older, are already working jobs in the industry while they're taking classes. Some of them are apprenticeships and internships. There's a great willingness with business owners to hire high school students, college students, folks who've never been in the industry to be able to train them on the job as well. Let's say that you're 
just out of high school or you're trying to decide, well, what career path would I like for my life to take? Or you may be retired from your first profession and you're looking for something else after that. What does the industry offer somebody that's evaluating whether to go into urban agriculture? The really great thing about our industry and our greater industry, not just landscape, is there are, whether you're artistic, creative, scientific, person who has a good head for math, there are all kinds of careers you can explore. The National Association for Landscape Professionals website has a career site called landscapeprofessionals.org that will help you, has an interactive game almost, that you, you know, answer some questions and then they'll say, this career path you might be interested in. And it also shows you there's an opportunity to make a really good living if you choose our industries as a career path. But many people don't think about that when they think about landscape industry. They think about a guy or a girl with a mower and a truck and a shovel, like you said. It's so much greater than that for many young people today who they don't want to be sitting stuck in an office or working at a desk remotely from home like most of us have been doing through the pandemic. It's an opportunity to be able to, to be outside, to be around other like-minded friendly people working in the industry and doing something different every day. We had an event about a month ago, first in-person event at a brewery in Tucker, Georgia. And about halfway through the event, we had about 150 people there. Halfway through the event, the manager came up to me and she said, Mary Kay, all of these people here are so nice. And I laughed. I said, is that unusual? Yes. Usually when we have big groups, you've got people with drama. In our industry, you find nice, nice people. That's true. And I think that it's a rewarding industry, whether you're a person with no experience, someone thinking they may want to change career paths. There's just a tremendous amount of opportunity. Today in our industry, just like in almost every other industry, there are so many job openings and business owners are just so anxious to talk to people who are interested, whether they know know the industry or not, because they can learn. What do you think the future looks like for urban agriculture? I think it's going to be tremendous growth. The landscape contractors were doing very well before the pandemic hit. People are interested in spending money. People don't have time to do the work themselves. They were busy both in the landscape installation, design, build side of it, as well as the maintenance side of it. What we learned in the pandemic, people were at home with money to spend and they realized, I really like being at home. I really want to improve my home and my landscape. In Georgia, we were so lucky. Didn't have a slowdown or a shutdown at all as far as our companies working. I can't tell you of a single company or business owner that I've talked to in the last year, year and a half that has indicated that things are are going to slow down. Inevitably, they will. But I think the renewed interest, having an attractive, functional garden or landscape at your home is only going to increase. The only thing I think that will slows it down is just the labor shortage. And so people are having to wait. The other issue is supplies, the plant shortages, hardscape shortages. We had a pine straw shortage, which I think is still continues through the summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so people are just having to be patient and wait. You know how people are, all of us today, nobody wants to wait for anything. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. When you decide you want it done, you want it done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, I take the other thing is environmentally, people are concerned about the environment. People are, have become more protective of the land, water and air, which is a good thing. Mm-hmm. 
People are wanting to improve their landscapes to protect the water supply, to use less pesticides. That's sort of a funny thing that people talk about using less pesticides on their lawns or their trees, plants or or vegetable gardens. It doesn't make it less expensive. It actually is more costly to be able to achieve what you want. What does your journey look like to executive director of the Georgia Urban Ag Council? Well, I had an interesting and very fortunate journey to where I am today. My former life, pre-kids and marriage, was I was in the restaurant and bar management. Loved that industry. Then when you get married and you have kids, it's really hard to work till two in the morning and then get up and function the next day. So I was very fortunate when my kids were younger, I was able to be a stay-at-home mom. I did a little freelance writing for some magazines and things like that. I knew some folks that I could help out with. My youngest child was in, I guess, middle school. I decided to become a Georgia Master Gardener and started volunteering at the DeKalb County Extension Office, working with two of my favorite people and mentors, uh, Walter Reed and Gary Pfeiffer. I actually was hired by the Extension Service to help coordinate the Master Gardener program. And after about a year of that, I had a friend contacted me telling me that the Metro Atlanta Landscape and Turf Association was looking for an executive director. Another professional trade association was called Malta. So this friend of mine said, do you think you could help them out while they're doing their search? There's a lot of things I'd done in the past, you know, event planning, scheduling things, talking to members, very similar to talking to the master gardeners and coordinating their projects agreed to work for them for a couple months while they did their search. And after about a month and a half, the president of Malta came to me and said, would you be interested in this job full time? And I said, Hmm, interesting. It's fortunate because I already had contacts with the extension service. I knew people there. I knew landscapers in my area from the extension service. It turned into a, just a, a really good fit. It was just a perfect timing in my life. As I mentioned before, I think we were talking about where the urban ag, what that meant. We had this group of associations work together, Georgia Urban Ag Council, while I was still executive director of Malta. We worked together for a couple of years on policy. Two of the associations in that, the Georgia Turfgrass Association and the Georgia Sod Purchase Association came to Malta and to, uh, to talk to us about merging the three associations. So it was a tough time economically. That was the, you know, during the Great Recession. It was very hard for both of them to be sustainable economically. Their executive director, one of them was about to retire. And so we really talked it through and we knew that we really agreed in all areas of policy, education, promoting the industry. And that's when we formally became the Georgia Urban Ag Council. That was in 2011. And now here it is, 2021, we're still there. We've gone through ups and downs, issues with drought off and on over these years, labor, you know, we, we deal with pesticide issues, immigration. It's an interesting role because I do something different every day. So I'm I'm very, very lucky. Yeah, yeah. Keeps it exciting. What's your earliest garden memory? Uh, That's an easy one. Gardening with my grandmother in Ohio in her backyard. Her parents were farmers. She did not want anything to do with farming. So she had a beautiful raised bed in her backyard full of perennials and annuals. And her favorite flowers were snapdragons. So she'd always, I remember being a little girl, her taking me out there showing me the snapdragon snapping. And I would spend about two months every summer from the time I was five until I was high school in Ohio. I'd go out there and tend her garden. They had great soil, which just <laughs> something can't be said for here. I fondly, fondly remember that. And every year I get snapdragons in the winter because it reminds me of my grandma. In your professional career, who has been your biggest influencer? Uh, Gary Pfeiffer from the DeKalb County Extension Service. You know Gary, I know. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
He retired about two years ago. He took me under his wing. We hit it off right when I started my Master Gardener classes. He has a terrific sense of humor. He's so knowledgeable. He's just always been such a helper, a supporter of mine. I had a great time working with him all the years. And then left the extension service for the executive director's positions. I relied on him for uh, so much all those years. He and Walter Reeves, uh, also extension service. When Walter started on the radio and he started his first website and answered questions, I'm a volunteer who helped him, you know, answer questions and things like that. There are about three of us. Shannon Pable was one, Stacy Freeman. And that was a lot of fun. And I learned so much because I don't have a horticulture background. So I learned so, so much from mm-hmm. them. Still, you know, keep in touch with uh, them. What is your most valuable garden mistake? Ah, uh, boy. <laughs> Where do I start? It was, I guess it was right when I had our, it was our second house. We lived in a condominium. We got married. Then our first house, I was all gung-ho to have this beautiful perennial bed and all this. And I was dicking plants into red clay soil without digging it up, amending it or doing anything. Nothing would live. I was fortunate that on either side of me was Ginger Dewberry, who was a fantastic gardener and gentleman. Adrian Chapel was another very patient gardener. And they taught me so much. My landscape gardens would never rival theirs. They taught me so much over the years. We lived in that house for, gosh, it was 20 years, something like that. Spending so much money in planting things that died. So that's, I guess that's not a terrible mistake, but that was That's it. gardening, learning. <laughs> yep. I yeah. would like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have. In my garden, I have a lot of work to do. <laughs> <laughs> That's particularly in my big backyard, which is just beautiful and delightful. And everyone who sees it is like, oh, you're so beautiful. And all I can do is say, yeah, but this needs to be moved and that needs to be changed. We've evolved over the years after we added big shade trees, magnificent oak and the tupelo, things like that. It was designed to be a sunny garden and it's now almost all shade. I look at the trees and think, what do I need to limb up? What do I need to cut back? Things like that. It was a low maintenance garden until the sun went away. So <laughs> got a lot of work to do. <laughs> yeah. You got to update it. Mm-hmm. You're invited to ask your garden design, build, or grow question at thegardenquestion.com. Not only do you get a chance to ask your own question, but you might inspire the next episode of the Garden Question podcast. So go to thegardenquestion.com and ask your question. Now, what's your favorite perennial? Oh, my favorite perennial. I would just have to say Lenten roses, hellebores. Shade. At least that works in there. I did, I just think they're the most beautiful, beautiful plant. And I love having something that there you are in January and it pops out and it's, uh, you know, evergreen all year. I love cone flowers. I just think they're absolutely beautiful. There's such a variety of them. That's my summer favorite. What's your favorite shrub? Edgeworthia, Japanese paper plant. Many people are not familiar with, you know, related to Daphne Adora. It doesn't die on you. I had a 10 year old one just died last winter. My first stage worthy of Piccadilly Farms in Bishop, Georgia. This is 20 years ago. That was where everyone went every February for their hellebore days. That was when Lenten roses started to become very popular. And I saw this plant I'd never seen before. And I picked it up and the owner walked up to me. He goes, all these people, these Lenten roses, you've got the best plant in this entire nursery. And it was an Edgeworthia. Sam Jones, I think was his name. I took it home and planted it and it just thrived. It's an interesting plant. In the winter, it has these like sort of like upside down umbrella looking little whitish and yellowish flowers that, that open up and are tremendously fragrant. 
And then when it leaves out, it's just got a nice, uh, just a real nice form. It's just a beautiful structured plant. It's also very easy to propagate. I had to leave my original one at our old house when we sold it, but I had propagated several to take to our our new house. I think I've got about eight in the landscape and I have given ones I've propagated to dozens and dozens of friends all over the Southeast. I have a lot of friends who take pictures every year as they flower and still do it great. That's a long plant. Mm-hmm. You got another favorite plant? Well, yes. I mean, I have so many favorite plants. I love all forms of hydrangeas. I've just got a new one, actually three new ones. Stachio, have you seen those? No, I don't think so. Oh, they're just a beautiful, it's a, it's a smaller hydrangea and it's got a pink and green flower. It's just stunning. Like the name pistachio, that same green color. Like many gardeners who collect plants, although I try to incorporate them in the garden so it doesn't look like a mess. I love contorted filbert. I've got one in our front yard, a miniature one that just, oh, just the shape of it. And it's got a purplish leaf on it that's just magnificent. I just got a new red bud because I had one that died. Red buds, of course, probably one of the first things you see in January, February, the, the beautiful purple flowers before everything's leafed out. Eastern sky red bud, I think. Beautiful, beautiful. I love conifers. Just so many cool ones out there. Our friends at Topiary Courtyard in Norcross, Diane and Mark Reeves there, they make their annual trip to Oregon. I think they just got back. And I'm always love to see what they have coming on the trucks in the fall because they've got amazing specimen plants, Japanese maples and different conifers and cedars. It's just uh, some of those unusual things. Not that I use them in my landscape as much, but I just love visiting them and seeing different varieties of what's out there. And when you think about the time that it took to oh, manipulate that plant into the form. So they are it's talking about this huge investment in, in that time, but it's just so rewarding to see them. Yeah, I mean, I could go on and on all day about plants I love. <laughs> Typical gardener for you. I have a new adventure, and this is challenging. I'm actually in summer in New Hampshire, where my husband and I have a family home, a property of 28 acres. Fortunately, not all of it needs to be landscaped. It's just naturally beautiful and a beautiful view of the White Mountains. Trying to do a little gardening up here, putting in some foundation plants and things like that. It's a real challenge. I'm in zone 4B. It's not a lot of variety. I was at a big box store a week ago. I said, I just need something to dress up the front porch, the front soup, because we have family coming up. So I bought beautiful dwarf butterfly bushes and on them they said perennial. I wasn't really thinking. I thought, okay. I said, I can put them there in these containers and then I'll plant them in the ground before we leave. Of course, I look at them, they're zone five to the eight. Box stores don't really care about where they're selling it. So I mean, that's a challenge. I was at a landscape supplier the other day and I was talking to the owners there and she was laughing about the difference in gardening in Georgia and in North New Hampshire. Just you don't have the variety because you've got a beautiful, great short growing season and we've got great soil, but you just don't have the variety. So that's a challenge, but it's a fun challenge. I think you can be more creative when you got less choices because then you, you've really got to get your creative juices going. Definitely. So there's one area I, we cleared that it was a real grassy area that was just always a, a pain to get the mower up there because the rest of the place we can use a tractor. I just said, let's just kill it all and cover it with mulch for now and figure out what to do there. And it's been very difficult for me to just sit there and look at this bare space. But I also know it's big enough that if you if you don't plan it, you don't think it through, it's not ever going to look good. A wonderful thing about this area, though, is all granite. Mm-hmm. So the answer is rocks and boulders. Just fill it up with boulders, huh? Yeah, well, I've got to find just the right one to put there, and then I can design around yeah. it. 
it's a good thing to work on that all. Are winter. the soils shallow there with so much rock? In some areas, yes, but it's a nice loamy soil where we are. We've got a good variety. We're up on a hill where the house is that goes down to the meadow and heading north. Around the house, we've got good draining, deep soil. The nurseries in that area or the garden centers in that area, would they source their plants as far down as Georgia? Where are they getting their plants? I guess would be the better question. They're getting a lot from Canada. Well, they were. There are a lot of nurseries and garden centers in New England. We have a landscaper friend who lives in the Boston area, and he was getting quite a bit from Pennsylvania, Ohio, places like that. A lot of the trees from Canada. Mm -hmm. There's a shortage, and just as hiding in Georgia, you may not get what you're hoping for in your design. Going back to talking about landscape contractors and and, uh, what they're doing, they're really having to think out of the box till the supply chain opens up. If you're talking about trees, it's going to be several years to get that inventory replenished. That's the thing about it is you just can't go out and hit the switch and manufacture a new new tree like you would in a factory. It's it's a time-sensitive years. Yeah, you can't rush it. You may remember back during the drought, Craig, back in what, 2007, eight nurseries that were just cutting down trees because they could not keep them alive. They could not afford to. Mm-hmm. They weren't selling them. People weren't buying them. Severe water restrictions. There was a real loss in the industry at that time. I don't know if it ever really uh, picked up completely, repaired it. Yeah, I know the drought years were very interesting. It seems like in this industry, there's always a curveball being thrown. We're experienced the other end of that. The drought is that we've gotten, I think, abundant rain this year. Everything seems to just be blooming and flourishing. I've never seen a year bloom like this year. But then we've got material shortages for various reasons. Did the freeze in Texas, you think, affected that shortage, not only demand, but I think it definitely did. It was just one more issue added on to what we were already dealing with. Talking to a variety of nursery and wholesalers a month or so ago, uh, that was one thing that they cited, the freeze. It, it, it certainly didn't help. It just added on mm-hmm. to the, the supply issue. Back to budgeting and determining what you want to do. Prices are going up. Supply and demand, inflation on top of it. So, you know, there's going to be some sticker shock if there is not already. I think by um, next spring. Prices are, are definitely going to be increasing. I, I would see that. I'm just amazed at me what things cost now, but it's going to even be even greater then. In Georgia, and, and I would say the Atlanta market that we talk about so much, which is huge, encompasses a big area. We are fortunate that our cost of living is so much less than many places. And that translates into what services cost and what products cost. Different parts of the country, it's quite shocking to encounter the difference. I bought three small clethras to plant a foundation and you know they were 50 bucks each. And I'm like, wow, what are these made of gold or something? But you know, salt is available. Traditionally, prices are higher in, in the Northeast and out you know, the West Coast. I remember taking a trip into Maryland once and visiting a garden center up there. And they were getting plants from the same suppliers I was, but they were like selling for triple the cost up there. And I guess it was freight. That's what the market would pay up there versus what we would do here in Atlanta. I think the advantage Atlanta has a cost of living. I'm just wondering if that's going away because you look at the cost of housing these days. It's amazing what houses that were $100,000 are selling for $300,000 just in a few years difference. Yeah, it is incredible. I definitely agree that we're seeing increases. I think it's all the people from the north moving down to Georgia yeah. causing the problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's what a southerners always say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, they're driving bad in Atlanta, bad drivers. I said, yeah, I saw those Northerners coming down here driving now. But- <laughs> it's true. I would agree with you on that. 
all these people have been stuck in their house for a year that finally getting out. Why should someone join a professional organization? shows that you're interested and committed to investing time and resources, your money, to a professional association that's working for you. The Georgia Urban Ag Council's motto is advocate, educate, and promote. What we do is we provide industry-specific education, programs that help all landscape businesses and organizations to help you not only technically a better landscape professional on the horticulture as design, installation, maintenance side, but to improve operations, to improve best management practices, provide information to help you grow business, increase your profits. And it makes you stand out from the competition. We talk about advocating for the industry. We are involved at the Capitol, working with our elected officials to try to educate them on what our industry is, what it does, what its importance is. By doing that, we help make sure that there are good laws in place and rules that help protect your business interests, that will help you to grow your business. Folks who we don't understand or seem to be interested in that legislative governmental affairs side of it, they sure will figure out how important it is when you have a drought or when you have labor rules proposed or pesticide rules, things like that, that could be damaging to your business. I think the majority of our members find that very, very important. One thing on our website, we have about six or eight of our members give testimonials about why they've joined. Someone who's just recently been nominated to join our board, a business owner, said yes, her answer when asked, why are you a member? She she goes, well, the Urban Ag Council understands the challenges we face and work tirelessly to provide resources, sponsor learning events, and offer professionals networking opportunities so they can get together, so they can share what's going on in their business and help solve problems with each other. That, to me, is a very, very important part of being part of a professional association. You're around people who can share information, understand what issues you may have as a business owner, and work together in a non-competitive environment to help each other. What is an issue in the last legislature you worked on? In the last session, last winter, January through March, there really were no big issues just because the legislatures had so much on their plate with the pandemic, budget, labor, things like mm-hmm. that. There was not a specific issue that we dealt with related to that. We had a lot of conversation, the legislators, the Ag Commissioner and the Labor Commissioner about labor shortages. How can the state help with labor shortages? Mm-hmm. That's an ongoing issue. Past years, there have been proposed bills to require use of certain types of plants or do not allow use of certain types of plants, like turf grass. We go and talk to them and bring them data and scientific reports and studies to show the value of, for example, turf grass or why creating a required plant list not to the advantage of either the consumer or the industry. And I'll give you an example. There have been some proposed plant lists that are all native plants and plants on them are plants that aren't being grown commercially, the consumer would not be able to find them or the landscaper to buy them to install in a landscape. It limits the ability of you to, to be able to, to work. Sounds like a silly thing. It's a big deal. I'm going to throw out an example. Let's say there's a plant list that shows you must have sourwood, wonderful tree, but how commercially are they available? How long is it going to take a nursery to be able to produce enough of that plant in the right sizes to make it available? 
There are just so many different issues that come up over the years. We talked about drought previously. We were instrumental in making sure that the industry could continue to work, talking to the Georgia Environmental Protection Division and legislators about why completely cutting out outdoor water use was detrimental, both environmentally and economically to the industry and to the citizens of Georgia. When the drought was over, we were invited to work with the governor's staff in 2010 to create new rules to protect commerce, to protect the industry, while at the same time promoting water conservation and educate our members, all the industry and consumers about the importance of water conservation. You can have a great landscape. You can reduce your water use. There's no question there. Those are the kind of things we do. Things you don't think about when you go out and buy something to plant, but it does affect the bottom line Mm -hmm. and your ability to have that plant available. Yeah, it's a it's it's those intangibles that people don't think about. And that's why we're here as an association. We're here monitoring daily and weekly, monthly issues that could hurt businesses while at the same time protecting the environment. What are the future issues you think in, that the urban ag will be facing? Water will always be an issue because there's a finite amount of water available. Continue to promote smart irrigation and water conservation. Help fund research from University of Georgia and other places to create more drought-tolerant turf grasses and plant materials and things like that. Labor it will continue to be an issue. Pesticide use, so that's a big one. We work a lot with the national associations on that. There are many states and local municipalities who are banning different pesticides. We definitely educate legislators to try to talk talk to them about that using good, solid data from different research institutions. The immigration issue is probably the first thing that every landscape company asks me about. It's a federal issue. And, you know, we support legal workforce. We are very pro-immigration, but there are federal laws that people have to follow to be here legally. We hope that and work hard and actually for the H-2B program, which is a visa program for seasonal workers, for the limit on workers allowed in annual to be raised. There are just not enough workers for the jobs that need to be filled. That's across industries. Especially construction, hotel, motel. Yeah, hospitality, construction, landscape, everything, healthcare. So those are just a few of the issues. And then there are truck weights. Things that are, for most people are pretty boring, but they're important issues. Transportation, things like that. I'm seeing a lot of fantastic projects out there. How does Urban Ag Council recognize the best of the best? It's one of my favorite things about what we do in our association. We have an annual awards program called the Georgia Landscape Awards, GALA, G-A-L-A. We have it every other year. We're electing entries again in January of 2022. Landscape companies can enter their project. There are several different categories. There's residential, there's commercial, there's seasonal color, and there's community service. There's uh, both design, build, and maintenance. They can enter their projects into this awards entry system. They submit a 10 to 12 photos, and then a panel of judges who are all professionals. We take a day and they look at all the projects along with the description that the landscape company has has written, describing the project, describing the process of how they installed it, what if there were any issues with installation or challenges they had to face. The entries are not judged against each other. They're all judged on their own merit. We usually have about 40 to 50 entries entered. Out of that, I'd say probably 30 ish will be awarded the grand distinction or merit categories. And to the judging, the judges can choose the judges' choice awards in any categories they want. Out of all the ones that they've judged, the one that just appeals to them the best. It doesn't have to meet any special criteria, but there's just something special about that project.
project. They are then awarded the Judge's Choice Awards. Then later in the spring, we have an awards dinner. It's always a well-attended, very festive affair where we show the projects. We do a video of projects with a description. The winning companies can be there and receive recognition and the award. Just a great thing. And I'll tell you, it's a great marketing tool for a company. I was talking to owners of a business a month ago who told me he just got a call from someone got an $85,000 job just after viewing the project on our website. If someone is looking for a landscape or looking for a project, trying to get some ideas and inspiration, you can go to our website at urbanagcouncil.com and click on awards, be able to view the variety of different projects going back to 2011. Black catalog of 10 years. Yeah, it's very interesting going through them to see the difference in what folks were asking for, different styles, the different plant materials, the different hardscape projects. It's really quite an evolution. So we're looking forward to next judging to see all those fantastic projects. One other thing we have on our website, we have a section called Pro Tips, where it's, it's basically a blog. There are different projects that have been entered, include some other different projects that we know of. One, there's a historic facelift to a small commercial building, their front area. One of them that's really funny is outsmarting the deer, the seasonal color beds that were designed and planted to try to, to have a deer-free color bed, which is practically impossible. There's some really good ideas on this pro tips part of our website. I mean, you could get rich if you figured that out. <laughs> I know it. I had a problem with rabbits this year. I've never had before. They're pretty destructive little critters. Between the deer and the they rabbits, sure over 300 hostas disappeared at my house. Oh, you're kidding. Fencing around them, so it helps. Sort of defeats the purpose, though, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I only have a problem with my expensive hostas. Those are the only ones the voles ever get. Yeah, it's kind of like they know. Mary Kay, tell us about the Georgia Urban Ad Council and how people may connect with you. Craig, the Urban Ag Council is a professional trade association for the landscape, turf, and horticulture industry. It's comprised of businesses and individuals from all sectors of the landscape industry and world. We have a website, urbanagcouncil.com, that people can visit to find out more information about the association. Mary Kay Woodworth, thank you for your insights into garden and landscape professionals. You are wonderful. This is episode 22, hiring a professional for your next garden project on the Garden Question Podcast. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question Podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question Podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.